welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, this week I'm joined by Joe Filshi Browning. And she is a communications coach dedicated to helping people understand the benefits of science and medicine. Over more than 25 years, she has helped scientists and physicians to speak with impact and authority about their work. Jo began her career as a journalist before moving into communications training and consultancy. She studied English at Oxford University and holds a diploma in PR and a postgraduate diploma in science and society. She has trained more than 10,000 people across 43 countries and four continents, and I'm delighted to have her with me today. So Joe, welcome to Health Tech Podcast, and there's no pressure here for you to be a very good speaker on this podcast at all. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's quite the introduction, isn't it? And uh, no pressure at all. <laughs> not at all. No, not at all. Whereabouts are you speaking to from today, Joe? Um, actually, I'm based in Basel in Switzerland. So um, yeah, what it's takes, wonderful. What takes you out there? Uh, so my uh, my husband works for a pharma company. So we moved yeah. here about twelve years ago. And uh, for people who don't know exactly where it is, it's right in the middle. It couldn't be more central in the middle of Europe. And I can actually see France uh, from my wow. window. So and Germany is like three kilometers away. So wow. it's it's, uh, it's a wonderful place to be and a and a center of innovation, science, health, pharma. So it's a it's it's and a skiing. really and and skiing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we are we are just an hour and a half from ski slopes. Which oh, is that fantastic. is glorious. That is glorious. <laughs> so you can day commute to the slopes. That's amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah dream, very lucky. Really. Very lucky. What a dream. <laughs> that is a dream of mine actually to go back to my sort of snowboarding. I think my soul lies in snowboarding in, in, <laughs> in some ways. I think I definitely need to tick that box. There's something then... very wonderful about uh, an activity that is fully immersive. And I think something like snow, snowboarding and skiing do that. So. I completely agree. I don't actually, I don't listen to music when I snowboard. I know a lot of people do. And I just think it, it, it takes something away. I think I, I'm there for, I'm there for the, for the look and the feel and the sounds <laughs> and the smells and all of it. But anyway, I digress already. Um, <laughs> Joe, it's a pleasure to have you on. I think it's going to be a really interesting episode, this, because obviously I have found my way into science communication, health tech communication, I guess you could call it, the media with Forbes and the podcast, arguably, and Pigeon, which I'm turning into a, a publication sometime soon. So I've kind of, as I say, found my way into this world. I certainly was not a good public speaker, as you and I were talking about beforehand. You know, as a child, I was very shy and it's not something I ever thought I would find myself in so I'm interested to, to have this chat with you about how you've gone along your journey into this world what makes you an expert in this world and I suppose some stories about how you're helping people with this in in uh, in in healthcare science that kind of thing so really keen to get into it but it'd be great if you could start by telling us a bit about your story uh, absolutely well um uh uh, as, as, as you said very kindly in the introduction, I, I specialize in science communication and I've spent 25 years really focusing on um, uh, a journey through uh, science communication to really supporting scientists and um, physicians when they're on the record, when they're speaking publicly about their science. But, but my background was actually um, in English, so I'm not a scientist. And I had that great dilemma when I was at school, whether I should go you know, sciences or arts or A-level and all my family are doctors. And in the end I went arts, right? And, uh, and after my degree, I joined uh, an investigative news, a small investigative news war corresponding company. 
and um, extraordinary opportunity, extraordinary people. Um, and what we did, and it was very unusual at the time, it's the beginning of the 90s. Um, so they would send small crews into war zones before they were the center of uh, the world's attention. So before CNN and BBC arrived, and then they wow. would get footage and we would you know, get the footage and we would sell it around the world. We would sell it to the BBC and CNN and to all the local uh, national news stations. And it was extraordinary work and very, very dangerous work. So there was a little bit of me that was like, what have I got myself into? Basically, <laughs> um, I'm 21 and wow, right? Um, and then uh, we also worked with various NGOs and we did their video work for them. And at the end of my first year there, and I've been trained as a journalist and I was you know, working on all of these reports. And then there were a couple of situations that really sort of clarified and challenged my thinking about what it was that I'd chosen to do. And the first one was that we had one of the first crews in Rwanda right at the beginning of the genocide. And we had these very brave journalists who were bringing footage back. Um, and we got this footage and it was horrific. It was, it was really horrific graphic footage shared it around the world. It was shown and nothing happened. Wow. Nothing happened. Nobody went to do anything. The international community took their time. It was a lot of like, this is terrible. I'm watching. Mm. And it felt like the opportunity to do something had gone and I felt really sort of disillusioned by that. And then three months later, I was working on with the Save the Children Fund and we did their video work for them. We basically produced like a video news release, it was called then, but it was this package of information, like a, a video press release, if you like, sure. to support the, their children at war campaign. And it on the day of launch of this campaign, it went across the world. It went on CNN, it went on the BBC all the way across the world. And they raised more money in 24 hours than they had done in the previous 24 months. Right. And I was, I was just blown away by what strategic, planned, coordinated communication could actually do. So I went to the head of comms at Save the Children Fund and I was like, can you tell me, how do I do what you do? And she said to join a large PR firm. So she said there were no degrees in communications or public relations then. It was a new sure. area, new field. Um, obviously that's changed hugely in my career, but, but that was, um, this opportunity to get a good, you know, apprenticeship, if you like. So I did a diploma in public relations and then I, um, joined Bursa Marstella, which was then the biggest PR firm in the world. And I was sitting in the interview and they said, which division do you want to go into? Do you want to go into consumer? Do you want to go into politics or medicine? And I thought, wow, maybe I can combine my sort of thwarted medical thoughts and, yeah. and career with my love of communication. So that's what I did. And I spent five years really learning my craft. And then I moved in-house to Glaxo, then Welcome, became GlaxoSmithKline. And I worked in the communications team there. And I was one of the company spokespeople. I was company spokesperson for four years. So I was really in the spotlight. It was over some very big launches. It was when Glaxo was uh, very, very high profile with various flu drugs and HIV drugs and smoking wow. cessation drugs and things. And, uh, and so I was sort of doing, I don't know, maybe 30 interviews a week sometimes. So lots of interviews <sighs> with journalists. And then in 2002, my then boyfriend, now husband, <laughs> uh, moved to Australia and I followed him and uh, went back into consulting. 
And because of my background, I had the opportunity to become a media trainer. And uh, so that's essentially somebody who coaches people specifically when they have to go on television or on the radio. And usually the people who did, who did that then were journalists. So they're either working journalists or ex-journalists, and that was their specialty. But because I'd been both a journalist, but also a spokesperson, I sort of brought a different perspective to it. Um, and so it's sort of poacher turned gamekeeper in a way. Um, and, and I think where there was a real opportunity that I saw was actually supporting people, not just with the message and the technical piece and what to wear and where to look and all of those sorts of things, which are obviously important, but also how do you manage the nerves? What does it feel like when you know you're speaking on behalf of a company and everybody's looking at you and everybody's gonna read what you said? And that pressure that these individuals are under um, and I just loved it. I really, and it, I, that was when I was like, this is what I want to do. This is fantastic. And so that's what I've really then pursued over the following years. Actually, that was what I did in my postgraduate diploma was um, looking at science communication, but with a, a, a focus on how scientists communicate in the media, media training, and what's beneficial for them. Um, and then in 2009, moved to Basel and set up my own companies, really, that support people doing that. So uh, Philshi Browning Associates, which is the consulting side, and then scientifically, which is uh, the training side. So what, what, what we're really focusing on is supporting people in those high stakes communications, because during this time as well, we've had the proliferation of the digital media. Now, not, you know, everything used to be mediated by journalists if you didn't get your story in you know uh Forbes or if you didn't get your story in um you know the FT or in on the BBC it was nowhere there was no way of getting that attention but now we have LinkedIn we have Twitter particularly for scientists um TikTok you know all these different hmm. media where people have the opportunity to tell their story directly to their audience so you know the the idea of speaking has become more and more important. And um, now I really work with people who have these high stakes conversations. So sometimes it is media, sometimes it's training somebody to go onto CNBC or to you know, do an interview with a, with a, you know, a newswire or do interviews with uh, the BBC or whatever. But a lot of the time it's supporting people on panels. So they might be doing a panel discussion that's being live streamed. They might be doing a TED talk. They might be doing uh, a regulatory conversation um, where they are negotiating with a regulator. They might be um, talking to investors. Uh, it might be an investor call or it might be um, raising funds with VC. So these, these conversations have one thing in common, and that is that you have a specific message and a goal and you also often are very nervous because there's a lot riding on these conversations. Um, and so that's really where, where I specialize. And uh, last year during the pandemic, um, I brought out, I, I wrote a book about it called Scientifically Speaking, um, largely because so much, so many times at the end of a course that I'll do at the end of a training session with a group of scientists or doctors will look at the feedback forms or people will say to me, they don't teach this at medical school. Why don't they teach this at medical school? Um, and so I thought, well, if it's not being taught at medical school, maybe I should just write it. So uh, that's really how I've ended up doing what I'm doing. And I'm so privileged to work with such interesting people on such interesting and, and um, important topics, mm -hmm. I think, um, because, um, you know, it's so varied. 
Um, but you know, every day is a is a new challenge, and every day is a real opportunity to support people. Absolutely, what what a journey that is! It's as I say, it's so interesting for me having migrated into this world. Also, I don't feel at the point where I could media train other people. Although, <laughs> to be fair. You know, our clients through Somex, the agency, you know, we set up podcasts for them and we do, I suppose, therefore train uh, those people to be hosts of their own podcasts and things because you learn a heck of a lot by doing. And I think your role as spokesperson for Glaxo, which is where I want to start here, you must have learned a heck of a lot by doing there, you know, 30 media interviews a week. That must have been tough, especially for a pharma company, because you're also managing, I suppose, well, you're as the spokesperson, you're you're bearing the ideas, concerns and expectations of every potential listener. And you're having to mitigate for that whilst you're then communicating and trying to meet your objective. Right. And I think I. I used to struggle with that when I first got into technology in in healthcare, for example, because when I was running my first accelerator, I would be talking as somebody who was a clinician who had found their way into what would be defined by the clinicians as the private sector. Therefore, you're dealing with animosity from that perspective. You're then trying to talk about technology companies that could help them and come in but they're going to make money. And that's a capitalist versus socialist issue you've got there. So you're bearing that expectation. So you'd stand up to speak, trying to make a difference of like, I can make your life easier with this computer system that's going to check or this medical device or this thing that's going to change and, and help you. But you stand up to speak and you're faced with 30 people that immediately hate you. <laughs> so like, I've seen people in pharma as well speak to clinicians and speak to an audience of clinicians and immediately just the air just goes crisp and you can hear a pin drop and you're just waiting for them to make a mistake for the audience. to. And it's, I think it's interesting. It's really interesting for me because I think even as that pertains to, as you mentioned, entrepreneurs going to pitch to VCs, I think there's something there about there's an expectation that the VCs will have of the startup that that entrepreneur will feel insecure about some things that they're going to try and mitigate. I, th- I think it, it's just a really interesting thing going up to start to speak to an audience that has got an impression of you and how you negotiate that and whether you should even, do you just go and play your game or, you know, ha- there's so much there and there's not one question there. There's probably a million questions in there, <laughs> but tell me about speaking on behalf of Glaxo with what everybody thinks of pharma companies. Um, the role of a spokesperson is, in some ways, a little bit easier than the role of perhaps somebody in a VC or, uh, you know, the situation that you were describing yourself in there, where, where you have this wealth of knowledge and you're the expert and you're being asked about what it is. And so in some ways, the whole of your experience when you're speaking is up for grabs. When you're the spokesperson of a pharmaceutical company, because of the regulated nature of what you can say and what you can't say, um, very often the briefing that um, I would get or my colleagues would get would be one page. There is nothing on this one page that you, uh, you can say the things on this page. Sure. You cannot say anything else. Now, um, the complexity of what you're, you're speaking about is, is 
is the challenge, right? So there's a lovely Ber George Bernard Shaw quote, which says, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, the illusion about communication is that the biggest illusion about communication is the fact that it's been done, right? Yeah. So it's, it's uh, the, the, the impression that it's easy, but actually it's incredibly complicated. And that's often sometimes where we start with the conversations um, that, that we have with, with uh, the people we work with, or, you know, we, we start with, well, let's have a look at it. So what's happening. There's so many moving parts. So you're speaking, but you're nervous. And you also represent like a pharmaceutical company. You have a message, what's written on the piece of paper. The channel will, will also alter the complexity of it. So you might be on a radio program. So you have maybe 15 seconds to get a sound bite out, or it may be a long form podcast and we've got 45 minutes, which is fantastic. Context is easier though. Longer is yeah, easier. Exactly. So it's hard for shorter. Then you've got your audience and all the preconceptions that your audience brings. And also do they understand the language or not? Are you going to be talking about myocardial infarction and they're not going to understand? Uh, you do need, do you need to say heart attack? What is it that, you know, what do they need to hear? And then you have an outcome at the end of that. So there are many moving parts, including you and your nerves and your, your, your state, if you like. And where, where I start is at the end. I start with what is it that you want to achieve? And that it can be quite a useful place to begin. It's sort of like the Stephen Covey begin with the end in mind. So what do you want people to sort of go away thinking, feeling, and doing at the end of this interview. And that's where we would start with Glaxo. It would be, you know, we want to, we want doctors to know about this new HIV treatment because actually it's going to be really important for patients. Um, it's a huge advance. They get, you know, uh, three drugs in one, right? And so that's a huge step forward in terms of convenience. So we want as many doctors as possible to know that. So we've got a goal there, but we also want them to, you know, prescribe responsibly. We want to make sure everybody has the right information that they need. Um, it might be if you're talking to a, an audience that's sort of a bit frosty, it's, it's, it's sort of saying, well, I want these people just to listen to me. I just want to get a fair hearing. And all the doctors within a pharmaceutical company, just like you, you know, they're driven, they, they've, they're passionate. They are wanting to make the world a better place as well. So, you know, it is a, it's a common sort of dilemma between the perception of pharma and the, the reality, if you like, in terms of the work that, that people are doing. So we start at the end, and we articulate that. And then we, then we go to the audience and then we say, well, what is it that we need to know about this audience? Will they be hostile? What do they know? What's their level of information? What will take them to the place where we want them to be? You know, what, you know, what, what do they need to hear? And you know what's fascinating there from, and I'd love to get your view on this because this is, this is one of the real challenges of science is that often what they need to hear is what does this science mean, not what is this science. And actually yes. imagine if you, if you have been working on your science for years, you want to tell them everything from the beginning to the middle to the end. But actually what this person needs to hear is it's going to save lives. It's going to make your life easier. So they need to hear the so what and not the what. You know, when I feel that most is actually when I'm not the one presenting. If I'm in a room of somebody else presenting or in a meeting of somebody else presenting and you can... When I've got a feel for both sides of the table, I can feel when it's going a bit wrong. So I've been in this situation, in pitches even, where 
you can tell that to your point around myocardial infarction versus mm. heart attack, I've been yeah. in, in investor meetings with people and I've do, doing office hours with a VC. So I'm sat on the VC side of the table, mm. but I have extreme empathy for the people that are pitching too, because I'm also in that seat sometimes. So but I've been there and I can feel it happening and I can feel the distance increasing yeah. of, of the gap of knowledge. And mm. you're right. The individual will then often, go, and we all do this. We go into what we know, we go into what we understand and where we're comfortable. Mm. And therefore we go deep into the science sometimes, and that's yeah. only increasing the gap. So I, I have absolutely been there and I've seen it and I, and I feel it and you, you kind of want to get involved, but you can't. Yeah. It's interesting. It's such a common problem. And, you know, and there's a reason for it. And that's because uh, all scientists are taught the scientific method. And the scientific yeah, and this method, is the, yeah. yeah, it goes, you know, background, hypothesis, process, you know, then results and then conclusion, 100%, right? Because that's extremely and logical and it works. It and works. It should be, it should be the and way everyone if we thinks. All had, yeah, if we all had ours, we would be, we would be so lucky, yeah. right? But we yeah. don't. And the reality is now, especially with video, I mean, you probably know this, but how long, you know, it's eight seconds before people turn off a video if they don't know really? the people in the video. That is the average amount of time. And I think the longest is maybe 30 seconds. The mm. first thing we do when we look at video is we look to the bottom right-hand corner, right? Don't we? How long is this video? 18 minutes, no way. 30 seconds, yes, I'll give it a go, right? So, you know, the scientific method is not set up for brief communication. Yes. So, you know, the distance that you're describing happens not just because... Um, uh, because there's a sort of a, a, a not an understanding of the audience. It also happens because a lot of scientists are just trained to communicate in exactly the opposite way. And so what we're often working with is, is saying, okay, well, what the, so what, what does that mean? What will that benefit be? And how do we make that relevant to the audience? Just to interrupt a sec, sorry, but do you think that the, that scientists will think this way because they they always have to reference everything in the, we i'm i'm evidence-based in the way that i'm trained right i have to reference everything it is my instinct to reference everything for me to just make a conclusion and expect everyone to believe it is frankly arrogance without reference and is and without context but to, again to your point in an investor meeting you just have to grin and bear. You have to do that. You have to just say with absolute confidence, this is the way it is. And I am the expert and you don't need references. By the way, they're at the end of the slide. I'm not going to take, I'm not going to take any of your time going through that. Look at them in the end. What I say is how it is. And this is why this technology is a really good idea, but that is so uncomfortable. Yeah. It's totally uncomfortable because of the academic way that we've been, we've been brought up. Mm. But as you say, you can say, you know, all the references are there. Do feel free to go through, dig into them. Have, have, have a real look at them. And actually that's partly why I focused on this for my postgraduate diploma was because I was talking so much to, you know, so much of my work was with scientists. I felt I almost had to reference the work that I was doing. Fair. Um, and, you know, and, and that's what I did. So I can, I can go and say, well, look, if you are good at media and if you get your, uh, you know, your study reported in media, you will get more citations. There is a direct link between right. the success of your media relations strategy and the number of citations you get. I can tell you that 
you know, in terms of misinformation, for example, because people make decisions based on the information that, you know, doctors give out, your chances of having catching COVID in the US will depend on, uh, will be linked to the media you consume. I can tell you that, you know, it is uh, the more you understand about journalists as a scientist, the better journalists will treat you. The more they will come back to you, because if you package the information for them in the way that they want it, it's like speaking another language. You learn to speak journalist and they will love working with you because, you know, and I used to love that when I was a journalist, you know, because it makes my job easier. So- I, must, I must say that that has been a real benefit for me. I think the, I've been writing Forbes as a contributor for, for a while. And because of that, I get sent press releases and you, you learn a lot of that language, you know, you end up speaking to, to journalists and colleagues and things like that, that when we want to get press or we want to speak to, it becomes a much easier conversation because as you quite rightly say, you're speaking the same language. It's funny because from the agency side of my life as well, and the clients that we help in health tech, language is just so important to create this feeling of, I guess, kinship or you're one of me and therefore we're both mm. in it together sort of thing it's like you know if you can find out what football team they support and just like wear that shirt when you go in or like you know that kind of old school stuff but more in in our world we we say from a communications perspective you know on on websites make sure you've got an nhs tab that anybody from the nhs can click on and as soon as they click on it it starts saying things like nhs england and five-year forward view and topple review and you know, make sure that there's a where, and all of a sudden they will feel like, oh, okay, this this isn't just a, this B to C thing that's just helping consumers and shiny shiny and making money. They actually know what they're talking about, and I will have a conversation with them. And language is just so key. It's so important, and the language of your audience, which is what you're absolutely describing, what you're doing with the NHS tab, and making sure that you know you're packaging the information for the people who need it, and and so often, and it's. You know, it's just because of, you know, because a lot of people aren't taught communication where they start is with themselves and they start with the language they have. And that's the only tools that they have. And that's absolutely fine. But there is a whole set of very simple questions, you know, and this is what I sort of go through in the book. But is it's it's these simple questions you can ask yourself that just take you out of yourself and into the shoes of the audience, and understanding what they need to hear. What is it that they're going to be interested in? They may not care about, you know, the details of the programming within your app. They may not care about exactly how the drug eluting stent works, but what they want to know is how many lives does it save? You know, and does it pre- prevent restenosis or that, you know, and even like the analogies you use, like, you know, the, the, the Christmas cracker effect to give people the idea. So they're starting to use storytelling um, around, um, you know, the, the messages that they need people to hear for the outcome they need. It may be that they don't need any information about any of the detail to be able to use the app. I don't need to know how my Apple Watch works. I just need it to do the things I want it to do, right? And in the same way, so there's a, there's a lovely story of the um, a campaign in Australia where they were trying to get people to wear sunscreen. Mm. And, um, you know, all of the scientists desperately trying to reduce the level of uh, skin cancer. So naturally coming in going, skin cancer is bad. You can stop having skin cancer by wearing sunscreen. 
And they would, they did all this market research and discovered that actually what the, um, what was motivating people to sunbathe without sunscreen was because they wanted to look good. They wanted a tan. They felt, they felt great. So what they did in the end was they used the vanity message to say, actually, it'll make you look younger. And they used um, twins. So twins, one who'd emigrated to Australia, one who stayed in the UK. So one has like shade because of the UK weather the whole time, the other one sunshine and showing the twins over a lifetime without sunscreen and how one twin was old, looked, looked so much older than the other. And of course, suddenly, you know, all these people are like, well, I want to stay looking young. Mm. So I'll pop sunscreen on same goal achieved totally different message because it's audience centric. Now that's quite an extreme version, but it does show that actually what your audience might need to hear isn't necessarily all the detail. They just want the, so what, right. The, 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 the bit that relates to them. And that is the importance of knowing your audiences. Yeah, uh, exactly. When it comes to communicating in health tech, particularly, there are so many audiences that companies need to know and understand. Mm-hmm. And there is no substitute for the hard work of just finding out and, and, and just putting in the hours to find those people to speak to them and mm-hmm. listen to them and ask them questions and, and those things. Because any single health tech company will need to speak to healthcare providers of which there will be a hundred different job titles of managers within a healthcare provider. They'll need to speak to clinicians. They'll need to speak to insurers. They'll need to speak to employers. They'll need to speak. The audiences are almost limitless in in terms of understanding that. But like we've said, if you can truly understand them and what makes them tick and you can nail that value proposition, as you've just done in that example, the value proposition was actually, do you want to look old or not? And if not, use sunscreen. That's really the killer value proposition there. And of course, secondary, yeah, you'll actually live longer and all the rest of it. But I've spoken to behavioral scientists about reward and and what behaviors we will take to get certain rewards. And if it's not timely and if it's not well connected to the, you know, all these different things. And that's a sunscreen's a very difficult problem to solve people if you can't have an immediate um, and tangible benefit, I suppose. One of the chapters in your book is winning the war of attention. I wanted to talk to you about this because you've mentioned TikTok already. We've talked about that kind of eight seconds to grab attention. Mm -hmm. And with TikTok specifically being a very modern communications tool, it seems to hack into a lot of the science around like what grabs attention and and all the rest of it. I think what you've also mentioned, which I think is interesting, is, is how PR was once new and content now is new and PR is getting a bit old because what's the value of an article in the times every two months when you could be pumping out your own content to an audience of a million, right? And then they're engaged and they want to learn more. How do you view the world now with content, all the different new, new ways of doing so the likes of TikTok, and do you train people to deliver best content? And if so, are there principles that you can share with us? It's a really great, interesting question because there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> I have a simple view of the world, in, so please unpack yeah. it for me. No, it, it, <laughs> it's because channels are so complicated yeah. and different channels require different skill sets, actually. And that's one of the things that's so um, that has changed hugely and particularly the acceleration of um, remote with, with the pandemic. Um, 
it's very interesting, like the, the traditional presentation skills, we would, you know, they used to be the, the realm of actors, almost people, voice coaches, yes. movement on stage. Now we move to um, presentations online and it's much more like, um, you know, we're competing with Netflix. We, we, we often say we've got to keep that attention and we're using the skills of maybe um, a journalist or a presenter because you have to be comfortable looking at the camera. You have to, you know, you want to make eye contact. You want people to have a relationship with you. Um, but that's a whole different skill set from speaking on stage. It's very different and it feels very different when you're doing it. Um, uh, in terms of the channels, then it's a different technique for each of the channels, right? So the majority of the people I work with, just because of the nature of what I do, tend to be doing videos for um, you know, LinkedIn or for Twitter. Yep. So it's about getting that message across really, really quickly. So there isn't any preamble. There's no sort of, oh, I'm here in lovely Barcelona at this Congress and this is fantastic. And I want to tell you about the presentation. I just, there's none of that. It's just like straight in there. So excited to tell you about this data that's going to change clinical practice in this way. So you know what you're getting straight from the tin and, and the person you're helping the viewer, the viewer knows whether to stay and watch or whether, you know, you know to, to click off. Oh, that's not for me. I'm not a urologist, not my thing. Or perfect, you've helped them, you've oriented them, you're, you're, you're not wasting their time. So really focusing on, again, the audience, but also the channel and making sure that you're not putting up a 25 minute video, that you're keeping it under two minutes, that you're really keeping people, people's, people's attention and respecting their attention. But the interesting thing is that speaking is the thing that's going to get the attention these days, because who's going to read a 10 minute, you know, you look on LinkedIn and it says 10 minute read mostly we'll click through that unless it's exactly what you're looking yeah. for, right? But you'll, you'll often start a video to see whether it's something worth watching, particularly if it's somebody you know. So the, the opportunity of getting cut through with speaking, I mean, we know that, that video content is the content that is most engaged with online. And it's because it's passive. It doesn't actually require anything. Once the audience has clicked on it, job done, you know, they don't have to do anything, then it's all your work. So it's about crafting the message for the medium for the audience and that's where the sweet spot happens that's where you end up with hopefully that magnetic communication that that is exactly what that person needs to hear at exactly the right time awesome and when people have let's say so again we we do this quite often for our clients we have what we call content calls and we will record half an hour to an hour of information from them on various topics. We're going to go and chop that up into content exactly as you've described. Where we're putting the, you know, the information, the value up straight away and then going a little bit deeper for the next few seconds, the rest mm -hmm. of it. So we do that quite a lot before I, I haven't really considered this previously because it's not been live or anything like that, but you talked about nerves and you talked mm -hmm. about people having something like this to do and perhaps being a bit, and I've seen it a couple of times in, in, in our clients, especially when something needs to be done quite quickly and it's going out in, you know, one or two takes and it's just got to be done and sent and all the rest of it. How do you prepare somebody when it comes to, I'm feeling nervous about this? What's, what techniques do you give them or what do you say to them in terms of coaching them through performing with nerves? I think the reason that I might ask this from a personal perspective as well is that it's, 
there, there are some there are some occasions that I do still get nervous for when it comes to public speaking. And it's funny, it's not attached to the size of the audience anymore. It's not attached to the medium anymore. I'm not sure what it's attached to, but an example is I just became chairman of my tennis club recently and I had to give a talk to about 20 people. And for some reason that made me really, I've got, and I actually still don't know why, but I was quite nervous before it. And my recall when I'm nervous is terrible. So any preparation that I've done in my head of like, I'm going to talk about these three things. I'll thank this person, thank this person and speak about this thing that happened and the rest of it. All that went out the window because like I had zero recall. So I don't know why I'm nervous for some talks still, but I clearly am. And what do you say to people that are nervous? So it's such a key part of the work that we do because nerves are universal, actually. The majority of people that I work with, even the most senior level um, leaders that I work with, CEOs, they get nervous before important situations. And it's very often because they are new to the situation. It sounds like you were speaking to a new audience. It was, yeah. It was a new audience and it's a very personal audience and you're Correct. speaking in a personal capacity. So you Correct. don't have your work to hide behind, right? That is absolutely spot on, yeah. So that is often a situation where people feel much more uncomfortable. It's than... a good point. I wasn't somebody in that yeah. room. You yeah, were you. I was me, yeah. Yeah, and so that's that's a, that's often a situation. And, and as leaders get more senior, it's not just what they're doing. It's their... Uh, you know, their perspective on leadership. It's their um, their mm. approach to their company, their philosophy that they're speaking about. And they're often asked personal questions. So where they were really comfortable before because they were talking about their tech, now they're talking about their leadership. And that can be, you know, a new thing and therefore nerve wracking. And I think when we have a new experience or the other situation where people get nervous is when it matters to them, when it's a really high stakes, you know, a lot rides on it. Am I going to get the funding? Will I get the okay from the regulator? What, what is the outcome that I'm going for? It matters to me. And so rightly, I think, you know, you, you've got a lot of pressure sitting on, on your shoulders. What I think is interesting is you said when I ran through it in my head, and I think that's where I really support people perhaps with a different way of mm. thinking about things. So firstly, one of the key things is preparation and not preparation in the few minutes before. I mean, sometimes obviously you only have a few minutes notice to do something. And obviously then, you know, you have a limited opportunity to rehearse, but I fundamentally believe in dress rehearsal and starting to say the messages out loud yourself. It can be in the privacy of your car. It can be in the shower. It can be in a closed office, but saying the words out loud. They don't have to be the perfect words. In fact, sometimes this process of practice and rehearsal refines your message. But doing that in advance of the, of, of the actual event, and what that does is it creates muscle memory. And it, it allows you to know what you're going to say. So your mouth has already said these words. You've got a mouthfeel of the words. And it's not the same as writing it down. Because writing it down, we often write in convoluted passive voice or backwards and forward sentences. It's, it's the spoken word. So really making time. So if there's, so I'll often work with somebody, they'll say, oh, I've got a, you know, a big pitch in six weeks. I'll go, great, let's have the first conversation next week. 
Mm, yeah let's okay. start thinking about it let's do that thought about the audience what do they need to hear we'll start the preparation we want to spend about 50 percent of the time on content and 50 percent of the time on delivery because the delivery is going to make a difference the last thing you want and it sounds like you've seen this with some of the pitches that you described is you know you're almost feeling sorry for the person who's presenting because it looks like they're so uncomfortable it's the last thing we want we don't want to distract from the message because of our nerves and depending on the person, they're going to need different things. So an extrovert might need to have somebody building them up right beforehand. Interesting. So what we'll do if I'm, you know, sometimes I'll actually be with somebody before they present. So the first thing, take the phone away. Turn off the phone. Off. Not do not disturb. Off. No mental distractions. The last thing you want, you know, you need to be fully present. You need them to be, you know, feeling like this is the most important thing so that they can really concentrate on what they're doing for at least an hour beforehand if it's really, really important. And an extrovert might need practice right the way up to uh, the, the moment when they're going on stage or when they're going to do the pitch. An introvert might need to just be given some space, just, just need to go off and be on their own. I um, mean, you know, these general, uh, you know, I hate making oh, no, I'm in that generalizations. I'm a, huge, I'm a huge fan of this. I, I, I'm an ISTJ, if that means anything <laughs> to you. Yes. Um, <laughs> So I am, I, yeah, leave me on my own. I will prepare. Yep. It's fine. Don't talk to me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> my phone and, is definitely off. And I, you know, it's just like, <laughs> and my job then is to protect that person from, you know, messing. Interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, and allow them the space to be able to walk onto the stage and bring their energy the way they need to. I have one client who listens to crazy pop music before they go Excellent. on, almost like Michael Phelps. You see Michael Phelps <laughs> with his head, with his headphones. Yeah. The cheesiest the cheesiest playlist you've ever seen. Excellent. Um, I think it's like even the greatest showman, right? Excellent. It is, it is really strange queen. It's all in there, <laughs> but it, it puts them in the state they need to be in so that they can walk on stage, smile and genuinely smile and say, it's wonderful to be here because how they show up, you know, that first few seconds, whether you're on stage, whether you're on a webinar, whether you're doing a video, that's that moment. You have to be completely congruent. You have what your words and what your body language and your voice all say have to be congruent because it's, it's, it's your opportunity to grab attention. And if you aren't feeling good, and if you don't care about your work, then you're never going to make anyone else care about it. And the final tip really for nerves is to focus on why you're doing it. Why did you say yes to the opportunity in the first place? Because there will have been a reason why you thought this was a good idea. And that's fantastic. You know, and, you know, it will have been an opportunity that you can't turn down. And there is an opportunity to help share your knowledge, to share the, the amazing data that you've got to tell your story, to help other people. So you make your purpose, your goal, bigger than your fear. And you think about it, you know, we don't watch other people presenting very often and go, gosh, this is a waste of time. You're often, you know, just interested. You want to know what they're saying. So put yourself in the audience's shoes and go, how can I be helping these people? And think of it almost as a service. Interesting. And, and then that can really help just not diminish the nerves, but it reprioritizes the nerves. It, it gives you a mandate for your communication rather than allowing you to focus on the nerves. And yeah. these rich, you know, these rituals of creating space, maybe listening to music, power poses, breathing exercises, different people need different things. But, um, you know, there is the opportunity of just making sure that there are all techniques to make sure somebody is fully present so that when they show up on stage, they're bringing them their full selves and their, their full energy to that. 
I think my takeaway from this is I think I've got there eventually through trial and error, I suppose, but knowing that different people need different things is, is quite an important one. I can, I can remember when I was actually raising a VC fund at one point and my co-founder and I, Alex were, were classic introvert extrovert combo. And he was, he was, he was very good at before these types of meetings, um, just just saying things like, do you know how many people globally ever get this opportunity to do this? Like this is hilarious that we're in this meeting about to talk about, you know, eight figure sums of money that they might give us. Like this is this is crazy. Like this is almost like it's almost not real. It's like we're living in a computer game. Like this is and that weirdly would relax me because I'd be like, well, yeah, that is kind of ridiculous, but kind of cool. And actually, yeah, we're super young to be doing this and all the rest of it. And that has been shelved for a while for various reasons, but um, yeah, it, it, different people clearly different things. And and whilst I, my instinct there was to, you know, just go and get space and and all the rest of it, still that was slightly helpful to me, you know? And, and I think there is that definitely personal element to, to all of that stuff. Um, you must see, you must see quite a lot. You must have some, you must have some high profile clients and some, and some stories. Not that I imagine you'd be able to tell any of them, but you must, you must see. Some I'd have to kill you. I think uh, probably. Well, indeed, <laughs> indeed. Before any presidential speeches and things like that. Um, Joe, it's been wonderful having you on. It's been an absolute pleasure. There's, there's so much about what you do. Do you want to talk about your book briefly and where we can all get a copy of this, even though there is one on my desk as we speak? <laughs> yes, it's called Scientifically Speaking, How to Speak About Your Research uh, with uh, Confidence and Clarity. Um, it's available wherever you get books. And it, and it really is um, there to help um scientists and uh, physicians really to, to have a process to think about winning this war of attention when they have to speak. And it might be that it's just speaking to your peers at a Congress, or it might be that you have a high profile or you want to have a higher profile and you want to become a media expert, a go-to uh, thought leader. Um, uh, you want to change policy. Either, you know, in whatever situation, it's almost like a coach on a shelf. So it takes you through the process that we talked about. So the idea of this complex communications process breaks it down step by step. Um, and there's a series of questions and, and exercises that you can follow that really allow you to really craft your message and then practice it. And there's even sections on how to do, you know, media interviews if they're face-to-face, -face, if you're doing video, if you're doing uh, videos for Twitter, you know, all these different channels that we now have to contend with, different skills. And there's, a, there's an overview of each of those. So it's, it's really high, it's really practical and it's actually quite short. It's like 160 pages. So you can dip in and out of it. It's not really meant to be read necessarily cover to cover. Awesome. And I think for the, for the scientists, for the physicians, for the, for the entrepreneurs listening, I think there's a, there's a couple of things here. I think the first one is from a personal perspective, there's obviously lots of different practical tips, some of which we talked about here that can be gleaned from this book and Joe's work and learning about how to communicate in generally. I think the other thing that I would probably say though, is that in my view, I don't think there has ever been a time where it has been more important for scientists to learn how to communicate. And I say that because I feel like there's almost a responsibility now in an era of fake news and misinformation for those that have got evidence behind what they do to figure out 
how to communicate that properly. We've seen huge, huge political things recently with Brexit and Trump and all these different things. And, and people saying, oh, it's because of fake news. It's because of this. And it's because of, of this, that, and the other. And there are arguments that it's the failure of the other side not to play on the same battlefield and like all these different, you know, not that I held, hold a view and I'm very central when it comes to that stuff, but I think there is a responsibility of people that have evidence to know how to communicate it in both a scientific way and official way when they're presenting, but also playing on the, the brand new battlefields of TikTok and all the rest of it. And there are plenty of psychologists and, and scientists on there doing incredible stuff. Um, but I think there's, there's so much ground to, to be made on this. And I think that's why I'm in the communications game for, for healthcare and technology. I think it's obviously why you are too, Joe. And I think, yeah, why isn't this taught? I think it should be, I think it can help a lot of people both personally, but also I think society and the world in general. And so, um, yeah, all the luck in the world to you with everything you're trying to do. I think it's wonderful. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. You're very welcome. Speak soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.